Welcome to Tanakh Daily, a Congregation Ahavas Torah initiative. Today, we are exploring the eighth parak of Melachim Bet, which can be broken down into three distinct units. In the first section, in the first unit, we revisit the Shunamite woman, the Isha Shunamit, and her son. We are told that after Elisha had revived this woman's son, he gave her uh, a piece of advice. He told her, he tipped her off to the fact that a major seven-year famine was coming to the land and that she and her son should leave and uh, go to one of the neighboring countries and come back after seven years. And she follows that instruction. But when she returns, unfortunately, she finds that her home and her land had been seized by other people who took it in her absence. And so she goes to the king of the northern kingdom and she begs the king for help in reclaiming her land, that which is rightfully hers. And she, of course, we, we must fill in this blank. She tells the king over the course of her explanation that Alicia had advised her to leave the land, and that's why she had left, and that's why she was able to uh, survive uh, up until this point and, and, and is now coming back for her land. And at that point, the king is prompted to go to Gehazi uh, to verify this story. I presume, right? We're told he goes to Gehazi. I assume it's to verify the details of this story. Uh, and uh, he does just that. And as a result, the king restores the land, uh, which rightfully belongs to this, uh, to this woman. Now, that's the whole episode. It's, it's a kind of puzzling episode in a lot of respects. The first question, which touches on a number of other questions, is when? When did all of this happen? The fact that Gehazi is still around and still functioning as a, as a representative of Elisha suggests that this happened before the episode of Naaman and that this is uh, achronological, that this happened earlier uh, and the text, for whatever reason, just presents it later. But the fact, of course, that Elisha is not present in the story, right? The king might have gone, we might have thought, would go directly to Elisha to verify what happened to the Isha Shunamit, um, but the fact that he goes to Gehazi instead maybe tells us, maybe indicates to us that this was after Elisha had already died, and that's specifically why the king goes to Gehazi, uh, knowing that he would have been the one who was present when this story took place. He would be the person who would know, um, but, uh, um, but not because he is currently serving as Elisha's right-hand man. So timing is, is interesting and, and timing factors into all these other questions of why Gehazi and where is Elisha. Um, so that's one kind of challenge to figure out. And then putting timing aside, we can also just ask kind of more globally, like why is this story recorded? What, what are we meant to understand uh, from this story? What's the message of this story? Alex Israel notes, I think does some of this work when he notes that this story is an interesting parallel to a previous story that we encountered where a woman, uh, out of desperation, turns to the king, cries out to the king, asking for, for some sort of justice. Remember, this is I'm referring to the story in the context of the siege of Shomron, when the woman said, had this gripe with her neighbor about Rahman al-Islam, this terrible situation of each of them uh, having to uh, cook and, and, and uh, consume their own children. Right, so in that situation, though the king uh, almost mocks this woman and, and and dismisses her, and is of course unable uh, to offer any sort of help in uh, assuring that justice is done in that situation. In this situation, though, the king is able to uh, to be of some sort of assistance. 
It's also interesting to note that in last time, when, when that woman, in the last instance, when the woman in the, in the context of the siege cries out to the king, it causes the king to despair. He tears his clothing, and then he basically puts a price on Elisha's head. He sends someone to go and, and kill Elisha. This time, uh, this story uh, really impresses the king in the other way, and, and it pushes him to kind of uh, seek Elisha, or at least a representative of Elisha, to try to get the necessary help or insight uh, that, he, that he needed. Uh, and then with that, he was kind of easily able to resolve the situation. So there are kind of interesting things that emerge when you place this story next to the in- encounter between the, the king and the woman in, the, in, in Shomron in the context of the siege. But still, I, I, it's hard to kind of tie this up in a neat bow. It leaves us really wondering, what's the message of this story? I'm, I'm certainly happy to see that things worked out in, in, a, in a positive way for the Isha Shunamid and her son. Uh, but I don't think that that's quite enough uh, for it to have merited being recorded and being recorded here in particular. So lots of questions to ponder. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, uh, you know, shoot me an email or, or you can come over and speak to me. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. The next episode in the Perak is also a rather cryptic one. We learn that Elisha approaches Damascus in Aram to go and see Ben-Hadad, the king, the king of Aram, who we have learned has uh, taken ill. He's ill, he's bedridden. Ben-Hadad is alerted that Elisha is coming and he sends out Chazael, uh, one of his you know, officers, right-hand men, to go and to greet Elisha with lots of lavish gifts and to ask Elisha if Ben-Hadad will recover from his ailments. And Elisha tells him something really quite striking. He tells Chazael, the, the middleman here, he tells Chazael that, in fact, Ben-Hadad is not going to recover. But, he tells Chazael, tell him that he will. Elisha instructs him to lie. And then Elisha begins to cry. And Chazael asks, why are you crying? And Elisha explains that I foresee something terrible happening. I foresee uh, that Chazael is going to commit these terrible acts of violence and brutality and destruction against Israel. And Chazael responds, how could I possibly do such a thing? And Elisha tells him, because you are going to be the next king of Aram. Chazael, we learn, then returns to Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad asks, well, what did Elisha say? And he tells him, he told me that uh, you're going to recover. So he tells the lie that he is supposed to, to deliver to Ben-Hadad. And then the text tells us that the very next day, Chazael seemingly assassinates Ben-Hadad. You could read it in, in a few different ways, but I think the simplest reading here is that Chazael assassinates Ben-Hadad. You could even possibly read it that what Elisha was telling Chazael to do was, was just this, was, was to kill Ben-Hadad. Now, let's, let's pause here and just think kind of broadly about what just occurred. Firstly, of course, it's strange that Elisha should be involved in appointing uh, the king of Aram, right? What, what business do we, do we think Elisha has in this process? How often do we find prophets of Israel going and, and impacting foreign countries in this way? But you'll recall that when Hashem communicates to Eliyahu Hanavi, right? Eliyahu Hanavi at Echorev. So he tells him after this exchange, which we've explored in some depth, he tells him that Elisha is going to replace him, that Eliyahu is going to be replaced by Elisha, and then he gives Eliyahu, seemingly it's Eliyahu's task, but he gives him a a few 
different missions to undertake, one of which is to appoint Chazael as the king of Aram. Because, and the reason for that is because he, Hashem wants uh, Chazael to be the vehicle through which Hashem punishes the northern kingdom for their sins. So, it's clear that and when you read that, it seems like Eliyahu is going to do this. It's it's obvious now that Hashem was telling Eliyahu that you'll appoint Elisha, and Elisha, almost as your shaliach, as your messenger, is going to be the one to complete this mission. He is going to be the one who is going to uh, appoint Chazael, and this is just the coming full circle. This is the actualization of that which Hashem had told Eliyahu prakim and prakim ago. It's also worth just considering, worth noting that this really couldn't have happened earlier, right? When Hashem told this, uh, this gave this mission to Eliyahu, then it would have been completely odd for Eliyahu to go and to anoint or to somehow get involved in the politics of Aram. Ma inyan Eliyahu etel Aram. What, what, what connection does he have to Aram? It's only really now that, that completing this mission is possible because of the great acclaim that Elisha has accrued through the various stories that we've just read, right? Including the episode with Naaman, which I'm sure made a tremendous imprint on so many, uh, as well as the siege of Dotan and the siege of Shomron, in which Elisha um, kind of is part of this miraculous deliverance from an Aramean siege. So at this point, as we see very clearly from the, um, from the way in which Elisha uh, is greeted in Damascus, we see that Elisha has the kind of clout, the kind of respect and, and position in the eyes of the Aramean people that now he can actually do this thing that, though it was already told to Eliyahu, though it was already a mission given to Eliyahu, it really was only possible, it only becomes possible now, right? So all, all the stories, all the narratives that we've read up until this point kind of give enough context and, and make it reasonable that uh, a Navi, that a prophet of Israel, could actually participate in these incredibly important political moves that are taking place in a foreign country. So all of that is, I think, very, very interesting. It's also quite amazing that uh, we find that Aram is looking to Elisha for such guidance. When Ben-Hadad is uh, is, is sick, he turns to Elisha uh, and asks him, uh, what he should do, or ask him what will be his fate. And uh, this is just a, a tremendous expression of the success of Elisha's tenure as prophet, and, and, and really making a tremendous Kiddush Hashem. This is the exact opposite of the, the you'll recall, the king of Israel, Achaziah, who when he was sick, he requested, uh, he sent messengers to Baal Zivuv, to the Plishtim, to help him recover, and to, and to seek guidance from outside of uh, the nation, uh, which is kind of, as we said in that context, this cr- incredible Chilol Hashem. So this is the exact opposite. Other nations are now coming to Israel to seek guidance from our prophets and from Hashem. That's kind of the ultimate Kiddush Hashem. And so that's another, I think, important point that emerges from this story, uh, that in the course of Elisha's life, he has managed to completely re- reverse this situation and to have foreign leaders seeking his prophetic help when they take ill. It's interesting to note that Elisha is completing a task that was given and really prompted by, was given to and really prompted by Eliyahu Hanavi. Right? Eliyahu Hanavi is the one who comes and, and because of his incredible zeal for Hashem, he's the one, he's the Navi who's saying to Hashem, you have to punish the nation. And Hashem responds to some degree by chastising Eliyahu for being in this position, but he also affirms that, that 
Eliyahu is correct, and he says, not only are you going to be replaced by Elisha, that's, a, that's a, an implicit critique of Eliyahu, but then there's also the affirmation that, but I'm also going to have you appoint this king of Aram, who is going to um, bring punishment to the nation. So in a certain respect, this is a mission that was prompted by Eliyahu. Elisha, though, when he goes and he, and he anoints Chazael, he does so crying, right? As we, we noted, he's crying because for him, it's very painful to be the vehicle through which punishment is then dealt to the nation. So this moment is yet another very powerful contrast between these two outstanding and often parallel prophets, but prophets that were, were very, very different. We have Eliyahu, he's the, he's the mastermind. He's the one who, who's saying, Hashem, for your honor, you have to punish the northern kingdom for their sins. Elisha is the one who's going to ultimately do it. Now Elisha is the one who's, who's making it happen. He's the one who is appointing the, the king of Aram, who is going to bring all of this destruction and punishment that was deserved uh, to the northern kingdom. But he does it with a heavy heart because Elisha is that cold mamada ka. Elisha is that soft voice. He is the one who is among the people. He is the one who is, you know, makes miraculous things occur to provide for the people, to provide food and water. And for him, it's very hard to be the vehicle through which the vision of Eliyahu is realized. So that's, as I said, a really powerful point of contrast. The parak then closes with, it, with its third unit, which turns our attention back to the south. Uh, where there was, uh, we have, of course, King Yehoshaphat, who is this very righteous king, who unfortunately, he passes away. And he is succeeded by uh, his son Yehoram, who leads the nation right back down that spiral. He follows the ways of the northern kingdom, worships Baal. Uh, We learn that he loses his grip over the region with Edom revolting against him and his inability to then re-seize control over Edom. His reign ends and he's replaced by a son, Ahaziahu, who reigns for all of one year. And so again, we're going kind of back down that, that rabbit hole. Uh, and, and now the ground is, of course, fertile for a revolution, which we will get shortly. That's it for today. Chazak, ve'amatz, and happy learning.